Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for December 5th, 2021. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. Uh, Yes, and um, excited on the show tonight. Uh, We're going to have in about 20 minutes our guest, Dr. Gibbs Knotts and Dr. Chris Cooper. Uh, They're going to come on and discuss their book, Why the South Still Matters in the Minds of Its People. Um, And so, you know, discussing about Southern identity resilience uh, with the professors. And so they'll come on in just a bit. Um, But we have so much to discuss tonight, more than we could possibly get through. And so Catherine and I have made a plan to try to talk about what really needs to be talked about this week and what can wait until next week when we have um, on the show. And so right off the bat, some, some sad news. Um, former U.S. Senator and Majority Leader and uh, presidential candidate, vice presidential candidate, uh, Bob Dole of Kansas passed away. He was 98. He lived a long and amazing life. Um, you know, he was in World War II and suffered injuries during the war that affected him the rest of his life. But to think that he was able to then live and thrive until he was 98. And I saw interviews with him in just the past few years, and he was still cognitively, um, you know, very there. And so just an amazing American life, um, regardless of which side of the political aisle you might be on. Catherine, your thoughts on the passing in life of Bob Dole? Well, you know, he was really an American hero. you know, I didn't really agree with him on many things, but, you know, I think many of us long for the days of Republicans like Bob Dole, who, uh, you know, was willing to work with Democrats on important issues like poverty and um, I think somewhat on the environment. And so I, I think, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, commend his uh, contributions to our society and, um send out regards to his family and friends who I'm sure will miss him, but what a great life and uh, certainly can't deny that he had an accomplished and uh, full life. Tonight. Yes. Um, quite an, quite an accomplishment. Yeah. I sent y'all preparing for the show um, some different things and, and that image of him just after the war um, with, I don't know if it was then president Eisenhower or if it was still, you know, Commander, I mean, I guess he had retired from the military at that point, Commander Eisenhower, but, I mean, it was just uh, a young Bob Dole, and that's kind of where the start of the political career goes, and then it ends, you know, pretty recently, and this is one thing I would say is probably a detraction from his legacy. He was one of the more vocal um, establishment um, supporters of Donald Trump's campaign in 2016, um, but there's so much life in there. I think we can still pick the positives out to talk about on the day of his passing. Um, I also, that uh, snippet that 
he and George McGovern worked together across the aisle to reduce childhood hunger um, through the, you know, child, um, the lunch program, the food stamp program, because a lot of times, you know, Republicans from farm states like Kansas would see the benefit to their people, the farmers, but at the same time, the benefit to the people that are very food insecure and needed the food. Um, and so the fact that they were able to work together on that, I mean, like a more recent story, you know, Hillary Clinton and Tom DeLay, definitely not the best of friends, were able to work together to uh, reduce or, or, um, or actually reduce the barriers and create more international adoptions. I'm wondering in our current political environment, where are we going to have the people like Bob Dole and George McGovern that can work across the aisle and get things done that are that substantive for the American people? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good question. It doesn't seem there don't, doesn't seem to be any uh, um, gray area there anymore. Yeah, it's one we need to solve soon uh, for the good of our nation. Um, well, now let's uh, talk about something else. Last week we made our prediction on the Atlanta mayoral race, and we all picked Andre Dickens, and we were all quite correct. Um, Catherine, I kind of felt pretty confident in my prediction, like I think you did and Tim did as well. But I didn't know that it would be like that, 61% yeah. to 39%. And the first returns that came in were apparently from a box that uh, Felicia Moore had won in the first round and it showed Andre Dickens winning. And somebody made the comment like, well, if this is how the night goes, it's over. And it was like, 1% of the vote counted. I mean, did you have any idea that the momentum was swinging like that? No, I was very surprised at the, at really the blowout um, by um, Mayor-elect Dickens. Um, I, I think we talked about um, at, last week on the show, I felt uh, just here in Atlanta a momentum for um, – Andre Dickens, you know, in that last week, and I guess I read that correctly, but much it was much stronger momentum than I expected. So congratulations. Uh, you know, I hope that um, we'll still, I mean, I, I, as I said, as I've said all along, I think Felicia Moore uh, has been a good leader, and um, I hope she doesn't just, you know, disappear into the ether. I hope she stays involved and um, – I mean, we have a lot of work to do here in the city of Atlanta, so it's all hands on deck. So I, I hope that uh, some – I mean, it really was quite a um, turnover in city council also. So um, there's a lot of um, former leaders who are – who you know, incumbents who did not get reelected but have all, all, all been, um, you know, good contributors to our to our city. So I hope that – we can find a place for them to continue their work and uh, stay engaged. Yeah, I saw a breakdown of the city map that um, I want to say Chris Hutman, who's been a guest on the show um, several years ago. Um, he apparently was an advisor to the Dickens campaign and told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that, you know, they really figured out that the, Atlanta, that the map was probably going to go this way. The northern part of the city Felicia Moore won in the first round, and she was likely to, you know, continue to have a base of strength in the northern half of the city, or northern third, really. And she did continue to have that, although I think he made some inroads there. 
the southern part of the city, he did well and Kasim Reed did well. They, they kind of split those southern precincts, but they felt that Andre Dickens could consolidate his vote and Kasim Reed's vote and win that. And so the real ball game will be played in the eastern part of the city, the Grantwood, Ormwood Park, Kirkwood uh, area, maybe Virginia Highlands, that part of the city. And so his campaign was able to put a lot of focus, and they did, and, the, and they actually overtook Felicia Moore in that part of the city, flipped a lot of precincts, and really expanded his vote there. And I thought, to really understand a race that is a nonpartisan race, so you don't have party trends to go by, you know, it's not like Andre Dickens and Felicia Moore have, won, have run for mayor. It's not a Democrat-Republican uh, divide. There was no white-black divide. They're both African-American candidates. But to understand the map that well, that early, I don't know how much of that was Andre Dickens. I don't know how much of that was Andre Dickens' campaign, but kudos to whoever put together that plan. Did you see that in the AJC? Uh, I, I saw the headline. I didn't read it, but I, I think that's, I mean, just from observation, it seemed like that now that, now that you tell that, um, it seemed like that what was going on when I was, you know, sort of watching uh, where um, the focus was on the campaign. It was in those areas um, in East Atlanta, the Eastern side of Atlanta. So good work. Yes. I mean, you yes. know, it, it takes, it takes those kind of skills to, um, to be successful and to prevail. So um, I'm looking forward to the leadership of Mayor Dickens. Yeah, so we'll see. And also, Catherine, you mentioned that um, there were candidates that um, – incumbents that were defeated. Just some of the highlights of the folks that got defeated and, and the new folks that um, came in. Well, n not really an incumbent, but Natalie Archibong, who's been on city council for many years, was running for um, city council president, and she lost to Doug Shipman, who's never run for public office before, uh, a, a community leader. So, I mean, um, that that was um, – I mean, they were both good candidates, I would say. Um, then Cleta Winslow lost. She'd been – Council for a long time to Jason Dozier, a new candidate, young, uh, young, young man. I don't think he's run for public office before, but um, he's been involved in. He was involved in the Young Democrats and then in the um, Democratic Party. He's been around and very active for a long time. And who was the other one? There were a couple more. Yeah. Well, well, so, well just uh, in general. Was it kind of an issue that, you know, caused this trend, or was it just, you know, certain candidates ran more dynamic campaigns? Um, I would say it was a combination. I think there was some uh, – I, I don't like to use the word punishment, but uh, I think people are very concerned about crime, and perhaps their response was, you know, get some new blood in here and uh, see if we can't conquer this. Um, I, I don't know that for sure, but that's sort of my take on it, that, you know, there's problems in the city and um, these these uh, city council people have been in office for a long time and haven't made, haven't made the progress that we would 
hope to on some of these matters. So maybe it's time for some new blood. That's just my uh, general, uh, my general um, takeaway. I'm, I don't have any evidence of that, but that's my general feeling. Yeah, and I find that kind of interesting being someone that's, you know, lived in Georgia all my life, um, metro Atlanta, early on when crime in the, say, around 1980, you know, the, the missing, the murdered children, but just regular crime that was outside of that was, was probably far worse than today. And so it may be that crime has dropped so substantially in Atlanta from those days that um, it, we're so spoiled that even though it's seen an uptick in the last year or two, uh, it's really thrown us off. Of course, we're like, hey, we want it like it was in, say, 2015 or, or 2017. Well, I also think that there's like a, um, there's a much easier to be um, com- complaining and recognizing crime with social media, you know, um, the various websites that people can report on crime. And so I think it feels more, um, more like more. It may feel like more of a problem uh, than it actually is. But you know, all you can do—it's all about perception. And yeah. you know, if people feel like they're, you know, unable to, you know, go out at night or um, fear, you know, parking their cars in a park in a grocery store parking lot because it's going to get stolen or they're going to get carjacked or whatever. If they perceive those fears, then it's hard to convince them otherwise, even if the data and the crime statistics prove otherwise. Yeah. And I think that next door app, I've heard research that that people, that increases fear of crime just because people do see something happen near them and even though those kind of things went on probably as, if not more prevalently, depending on your area, um, you just didn't know about it. Now that you do, uh, information is not necessarily power. Um, yeah. Right. So. And also, I, I, I think Nextdoor is a really good example. Um, so in my, my area, Nextdoor, there's a lot of complaints about noise and, you know, fast cars, which are, you know, I mean, those are, uh, are um, annoyances, and with fast cars, they are dangerous. But it's not, uh, and I think it elevates this uh, sense of fear. But, you know, loud parties and um, cars with loud engines are not really crime, but I think they instill this image of, sort of out of control behavior and then people carry that to think that it's crime. So I think it, it, it just magnifies what may not be really dangerous um, activities, but generate that fear. Yeah. Probably quality of life, if you will. Well, we've got yeah. maybe just about well, five minutes. I want to move away from the South for just a minute. Cause we're going to talk a lot about the South with our guests. And I'm going to talk about the Pennsylvania uh, Senate race. We talked a few weeks ago, Mike Mitkus, and at that time we talked about Sean Parnell being the nominee and all of the baggage he came with. And he 
probably wisely dropped out. I mean, there were some major red flags, and I don't mean political red flags. I mean, like, criminal red flags with that guy. So he dropped out and uh, seemingly taking his place, although it's still a crowded field, and um, he may not win their nomination. But uh, Dr. Oz is running for um, U.S. Senate in um, Pennsylvania. What's your initial thoughts on that candidacy, Catherine? Well, I'm glad he'll. I assume he'll be off TV, so I'm glad of that. But I don't. I, I don't have a lot of respect for that guy. I think he's kind of a hack. I don't know what, um, you know, expertise or um, political skills he brings to the game, but can't stop people from rolling out of bed and decided deciding to run for one of the top offices in the country. <laughs> Well, and here's here's the, the, the fear I have about Dr. Oz is while I think a lot of us may know about, you know, the diet pills and a lot of the pseudoscience he's gotten involved in in recent years, um, and I have no idea what some of his other political opinions are going to be on other issues, um, is when he was introduced, he was introduced on the Oprah Winfrey show, and um, even though she may not give him her stamp of approval anymore, and I really haven't heard, you know, where their relationship has gone since he's gotten into a lot of these more sketchy medical um, schemes, if you will. The fact that that's the way he was introduced, I think he may seem more safe and palatable to a lot of voters than he would otherwise. Definitely more than more so than Sean Parnell. So I think this is kind of a net negative. Uh, for Democrats if he's the nominee instead of Sean Parnell. I mean, what's your thoughts of how he was, say, introduced? He and Dr. Phil and some others were, you know, on Oprah Winfrey's show, and I don't know how many years ago he first came on. Well, you know, honestly, I didn't know that. So you just said it. Yeah. I didn't know that he came through the Oprah uh, machine or whatever. Um but I think you're right. I think that, you know, Oprah um, adds a sense of credibility to people um, that she, you know, either, I mean, I, like, I, I think it promotes is a, is a strong word, but introduces. I think she, you know, people respect her and um, think that she has, you know, good judgment. And I'm not saying she doesn't. Maybe at the time that she introduced Dr. Oz, it was before he got off into some of this wacky stuff. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think, I, I think you're right. It may be, it may be a net negative or net neutral um, for Democrats. I don't know that it helps them, even though I think he's a hack. Yeah, and I think he, he and, um, you know, Ben Carson, I think, have a lot of similarities. He apparently created a heart valve. I watched the intro video, and I'll take that line, and it's, face value that, you know, kind of how he got introduced and a little bit famous was, at least in the medical world, is he created a heart valve that, you know, I mean, I know there's probably many of those, but um, he created one that, that was technologically advanced at the time, and it was probably groundbreaking and wonderful, just like Ben Carson's work on brain surgery was probably wonderful at the time. I've seen the movie with Cuba Gooding Jr., but then when he got into politics, that kind of changed his, you know, dynamic a lot. Um, and so are people going to be able to um, differentiate that? I think a lot of voters will. Some may not. And if those voters are in that persuadable middle, that's where it's going to affect things. Um, 
I will say this, it's going to be an interesting change in the race because let's just say, and it very well could be Connor Lamb, but if it's John Fetterman that's the nominee, before you had, I think, toxic masculinity with Sean Parnell with maybe hyper-masculinity uh, with John Fetterman because he's such an imposing physical figure. Um, this race may kind of change the dynamics because it's now Dr. Oz who's completely different than at least um, – uh, you know, Sean Parnell and, and in many ways, John Fetterman and even Connor Lamb as well. So I think what we'll do is uh, we're going to put a pin in this. And next week, you, me and Tim will do our buy, sell, hold on um, Dr. Oz's campaign. But right now, I want to welcome on our guest onto the kudzu vine, Dr. Gibbs Knotts and Dr. Chris Cooper. Welcome, doctors. Thanks so much for having, for having us. Yes. All right. Well, um, I'm glad to have you both, and typically we'll have one guest, but you both co-wrote this book, and and I believe it was y'all's idea to let's both be on. So I'm going to try to structure it where I'll call on one and then call on the other or say a question and say, which one of y'all want to answer that part at first, and, and we'll have us the good interview. Uh, but one thing I want to do right off is I want um, Dr. Cooper, I want you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your biography. Sure. Yeah, glad to. And and thanks for having me on the show. And always good to, to be able to chat with my friend Gibbs as well. So I'm I'm Chris Cooper. I'm a professor of political science and public affairs at Western Carolina University. So that's uh, the western part of North Carolina, west of Asheville. And the answer to your question is yes, you can go west of Asheville and still be in the state of North Carolina. Um, I grew up in South Carolina. Um, was born in Greenville, lived in Spartanburg, and, and uh, lived in Virginia for a while. Went to college at, uh, at Winthrop in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Some good basketball teams there. Um, went to graduate school at the University of Tennessee. Picked up a, a national championship in football while I was there that had nothing to do with me. And, uh, and then I moved here in 2002, and I've been uh, teaching political science and public affairs ever since. And that's uh, that's where I met Gibbs. He was here a couple of years before me, and, and we Became fast friends and and uh, enjoy hanging out together and enjoy writing articles and books and sundry other kinds of things together. Okay, so the difference between you and Peyton Manning is you were actually on campus when they won their national championship, right? That's ex- that's one of really the only re- difference between me and Peyton Manning is just is just that simple fact. That's right. <laughs> oh man, and, that, and I like Peyton Manning, so that shouldn't have been a jab at him at all. It just, uh, you know, just uh, it shows I know that when it happened, it was actually T. Martin was the quarterback, which a That's lot of people exactly wouldn't have predicted. Right. Yes, well, uh, Doctor Knotts, go ahead and uh, introduce this, uh, yourself and give us your bio. Well, David, thank you so much for having us. And, and like you, I grew up in Georgia. I grew up in Gwinnett County in Snellville. And uh, went to college at the University of North Carolina. And that's where I really started thinking a lot about the South and taking classes about the South and basically studying everything I could about the region. I went to grad school back in Atlanta at Emory. Uh, I worked at Western Carolina. I got the job two years before Chris Cooper did in, in 2000. And then in 2012, I moved to the College of Charleston to be the department chair of political science there. And uh, I'm currently the dean of humanities and social sciences at the College of Charleston. Yes, well, so good to have y'all both on, uh, academics, but then folks that have lived this. Um, Y'all have written this book. I guess it's about three or four years old now, but it's still very, very relevant. Uh, The Resilience of Southern Identity, Why the South Still Matters in the Minds of Its People. Um, 
And so just to kind of let you all know, uh, I grew up in uh, Jonesboro, Georgia, which is the setting uh, the Clayton County is for Gone with the Wind. And so you really can't get oh, wow. much more southern identity uh, than that. And, of course, Catherine grew up south of the upper peninsula of Michigan, so um, her southern roots and bona fides <laughs> are also um, outstanding. <laughs> but um, so tell us, um, and I guess we'll start with Dr. Knotts this time, uh, what caused y'all to decide to write this book? And then, of course, Dr. Cooper, if you need to jump in, you feel free. Sure. Great. Well, Catherine, I, I grew up, I was born uh, in Michigan. I left that part out. My dad was in the Air Force, so he was up at Kinross, in Kinross area on the Upper Peninsula as well. But, uh, again, I spent the, the vast majority of my life in the South. But, yeah, I mean, I think it's that what David said. I mean, thinking about the South growing up, it's gone with the wind. It's jacked-up pickup trucks, big belt buckles, country music. And I guess when I got to, to UNC and started thinking about the South, it was a lot more complex. It was, you know, it was much more diverse racially than, you know, probably I thought growing up in Gwinnett County in the 1980s. Uh, there was a lot of just really interesting political and social dynamics going on in the region. And so we just wanted to better understand, uh, you know, this concept of Southern identity. And we were also, you know, thought that, look, you know, this is something that we think could fade away. I mean, there's a lot of people moving to the area. You see that down in Georgia. I'm in uh, South Carolina in Charleston, and we have tons of people from all over the country that moved to Charleston. And what we find in our book, one of the key findings is that the South uh, has an identity has stayed pretty resilient. That's the, that's the reason we picked the title, The Resilience of Southern Identity. And so uh, it's definitely a topic that, uh, we thought about growing up a lot, uh, but we, we, we said, you know, we got to actually, you know, make our, you know, try to try to try to make our statement about what Southern identity is and, uh, and how we think it's changed and evolved. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just, Chris, I'll just hop in real quick and agree with Gibbs, uh, completely. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's not the normal thing for academics to say, well, part of the reason that I wrote a book or we wrote a book was to understand something about ourselves. But I think that's kind of where the question came from, right? So Gibbs and I both read a lot of history in addition to being political scientists. And so we were reading a whole lot of things that said that the South should be disappearing, right? That as the world looks more and more similar, that if you, you know, go to the outdoor mall in suburban Atlanta or suburban Seattle, it looks the same, Um Therefore, Southern identity should be failing, and historians have been, you know, riding the epitaph for the South for, you know, over half a century. But that really wasn't what we were seeing, right? I mean, if, if you're in Charleston or if you're in Asheville or if you're in Atlanta, I mean, you can't trip without falling over three different, you know, Southern restaurants, right? I mean, it, it doesn't appear that the South is dying away. It doesn't appear that the notion of the South or uh, kind of that as a, as a construct would, is going away. And so we're trying to figure that out, and we're also trying to figure out a little bit, I think, of our own complicated relationship with the South, right? I mean, we're, we're both um, lived in the South the vast, vast, vast majority of our lives, are proud of it in some ways, but obviously, like a lot of folks, ashamed of it in some other ways. And so just trying to make sense of all that in kind of an academic, you know, puzzle sort of way, but also in a little bit of a self-reflective kind of way. Yes. I mean, if you had to say like five stereotypes about the South, you know, the South has better cooking, the South plays football better, um, the South is more polite, the South has mamas and grandmas that just love you better. And then the South is more racist. 
The first four, mm-hmm. we'd probably be proud of and go, oh, yeah, we, we really that, – that's us. I mean, that's what most of Southerners want to say. The fifth one, sometimes we want to admit it, yet because we want to admit it. We know it, like I know it, that the South has this horrible racist history. Some don't want to admit it, but it's this negative. How, do you, how did y'all in y'all's research um, figure out how to do the positive and the negative of race being the negative and the positive being the other things? Um, and I'll let Dr. Cooper go first on this one. Sure, yeah, and I'd love to hear obviously anything Gibbs has to say too. But, you know, part of it is we just let people speak for themselves. So we, we tend to do a lot of, of quantitative research, right? We, we we count a lot of things, and we run a lot of statistics on the on the things we count. Um, and we did some of that. We did a lot of surveys. We did um, uh, this thing we kind of call behavioral residue, which we can talk about, which is way less sophisticated than it has made it sound. But we also did some focus groups, and those were really, really helpful in helping us both understand what people are thinking about when they say they're Southern. So we had focus groups of African-Americans. We had focus groups of whites. And we had some really open-ended questions about, you know, do you consider yourself a Southerner? What do you think of when you think of the South? And just kind of let people guide us. And that, I think, really helped us understand. And one of the takeaways is that it's not one thing and that people do hold these various ideas about the South in their brains um, at the same time, particularly when you're talking about um, African-American Southerners uh, who actually today hold Southern identity in the same or maybe even slightly more higher numbers than whites. But, you know, that's a group of people who has a great deal of pride in the South and also has a great deal of uh, disgust, for lack of a better term, with, with the South. And so I think just, just kind of letting people guide. But I'd love to hear what Gibbs has to say that I'm missing there. Yeah, I think, Chris, you did a great job. And I guess one, a couple things just quickly to add would be that we didn't really want to say whether Southern identity was a good thing or a bad thing. We probably sides, we probably did sidestep some, you know, we didn't really address, you know, what the, what racial attitudes are like in the South. I mean, plenty of people have studied that and, you know, we'll probably study that in some future topic. But what we did try to do is figure out, okay, well, is this concept of Southern identity a real thing? And we say, yeah, it is. And it's actually pretty strong about three and four people who live in the South you know, when asked the question, do you consider yourself to be a Southerner, say they're Southerners. And then we really, really wanted to understand how blacks and whites think about the region. And, uh, you know, our biggest takeaway in our focus groups, and that was a really fun part of our book, was that we just, we, we, asked, we asked groups, we said, you know, what, what, is it, what is your Southern identity? What does being a Southerner mean to you? And it was, it was things like, David, those four things you listed first, better cooking, uh, uh, football, uh, clothes, things, uh, the hospitality, all those types of things were mentioned. You know, we, we probed on it, follow-up questions and asked about, you know, what do you think about race relations? What do you think about politics? That's where we saw more differences between blacks and whites. But when it came to sort of the connection to the region, it really did, at least in, in, in what we were able to find, seem more about those positive characteristics. And there was something else, David, I think you would really be interested in. It was that there was a real kind of desire to defend and stick up for the South. I mean, they'd share examples where people from outside the South would be critical or somebody would send a funny meme or a funny video, and they felt like they sort of needed to stick up. And we, we didn't see that coming at all, the sort of like defense of the South 
as it's sometimes ridiculed in the national media. Yes. Well, um, I was going to ask, uh, I almost set it up with a little bit and then ask another question. And, and Gibbs, I definitely want you to go first on this one, being from Gwinnett County. Um, but my four grandparents, probably all born in the 1920s without, you know, looking that up. One grandfather might be a little before that, but generally around those, that date. Um, one was born in Hogansville near LaGrange. One was born in Waycross. One was born in Hateful. And one was born in Gwinnett County in Snellville. And that's my uh, paternal grandmother. And she probably had the most rural upbringing of any of the four. And I tell my uh, niece and nephew who, you know, grew up in Gwinnett County that of those four places that back in that time, it was by far the most agricultural and rural of all those four places around the state. And they're like, you got to be crazy. I mean, Waycross is way more rural. I'm like, now it is, but not then. And so my question is, is, there's this new South, and Metro Atlanta is a big part of this new South. Um, how, and there's other cities like Charlotte and like, uh, you know, Richmond and, and places, Asheville, I'm sure, places all across that have, have transformed. How have, like, the rural and the urban-suburban divide affected how people feel about their Southern identity? That's such a good question. So I was in Gwinnett in the 80s. And uh, it was kind of touting itself then as the fastest growing county, but still very, there was no 316. It was still Highway 78. It was like two lanes between Athens and Atlanta. And so just the unbelievable change in that county since I left and certainly since your uh, grandmother lived there. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's what we tried to understand. I mean, we sort of thought, okay, of course, the rural areas probably don't have a lot of population change. There's not people moving from other parts of the country, typically to rural areas in big numbers, but it's those urban and suburban areas, particularly the suburban areas. Uh, but, you know, we, we were able to look at public opinion data, you know, going back to the 1970s, there was this professor at University of North Carolina, he was a sociologist named John Shelton Reed. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have probably heard of he, he writes all kinds of books, and I writes books about barbecue, among other things. But uh, he had some data, and really, even during this transition period, going back several decades, this sort of connection to this region has stayed pretty similar. We even, you know, were able to identify that, or, you know, kind of build on this concept called assimilated Southerners, people who move from another part of the country or may marry someone from the region that, you know, will eventually sort of, if, if pressed, will say, hey, I do kind of consider myself to be a Southerner. So it's definitely... Uh, I think the suburban areas are, and the urban areas are where the most action is. Uh, but it's interesting because even folks in those areas, you know, one of the things they'll talk about the South is they'll sort of talk about uh, the sort of rural connection or the agriculture or the, or the food. And, you know, these are not people that are out working on a farm or doing a lot of spending a lot of time in the woods. But there's, there's a nostalgia, whether it's a trip to a grandparent's house growing up or uh, just something they did as a kid, but there's really kind of this connection to the land that I think exists here uh, in this region in ways that it doesn't in other places in the country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I, Chris, I'll, just, I'll hop in real quick and, and agree completely. I mean, I think it's one thing we found is that it doesn't vary as much by urban and rural and suburban areas as you would imagine that it would, right? Although I think the ways in which people – Identify, so, so Southern identity is a concept. So if you ask people, hey, do you identify as a Southerner? It's relatively constant across place. 
but I think the what the types of things people are connecting to may change a little. Um, with that said, I was in Atlanta the other week, you know, all of y'all stomping grounds, sounds like, and I went to eat at uh, Poor Calvin's, and I was just looking while we were talking, they described themselves as a rare Asian-inspired cuisine with Southern comfort. I mean, what tells us more about the changing South than you can run a restaurant in downtown Atlanta today, talk about yourself first as Asian-inspired, but throw in that you've got Southern comfort. So I think, and I don't think they mean the whiskey. So, you know, I think people in urban areas, suburban areas, and rural areas are finding a reason to identify Southerners. And I think that's one of the big findings Gibbs and I have is, you would sort of think that as the world be does look more and more similar, that region would drop away. But we're seeing because it looks more similar, it's like people want something to hold on to. So regional identity becomes perhaps even more important as the world looks more and more homogenous. Yes. Uh, I've never heard of that place, um, but, but i tell you how Southern I am. Uh, one of the last times my wife and I did something in Atlanta, we went to see the Banksy show, the British uh, pop artist. But we went to the Mary Max Tea Room before, so um, oh yeah, we're just that southern. <laughs> well, I'm gonna, yes, I'm gonna pass it over to Catherine, who now resides in Atlanta and probably is more familiar with the uh, cuisine scene in town now. <laughs> Catherine, <laughs> hi guys, thanks for being on tonight. I really appreciate it, um, and thank you for writing this book. Um, I moved to Atlanta in 1995. I was just around 40, I guess, and I'd grown up and lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is like, you know, liberal bastion of the Midwest. And when I decided to move, all my friends were like, you're moving to the South? Like, isn't it going to be horrible? And it's so (laughs) conservative and blah, 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 blah. And uh, I didn't really know what to expect. I, uh, it was a, it was a whim. And uh, I, obviously I liked it. I, I live here now and I, I, I guess I'm, what what might be considered an assimilated southerner um but the thing that i found interesting was that that i found interesting is that in the north um we have there are these images of the south being kind of uh i don't want to say backwards but a little bit uh maybe mm-hmm. naive or um not that well educated or you know racist or whatever but as I've lived here, and the whole time I've lived here, I've lived in the 5th Congressional District, so until just over a year ago, I was represented by Congressman John Lewis, and who could, what liberal could ask for better than that? And uh, so it's interesting, like, I came here with one attitude. I mean, I didn't have a negative attitude. It was just like, it was a different, uh, it's, I felt like it was going to be a very different environment. But it's turned out, you know, now that I live here, I think, well, you know, we have this incredible history of the civil rights movement. We have a lot of progressive politics in Atlanta, not in Georgia, you know, across the state. But I just think it's interesting that there's an image of the South outside of the South. But once you get here and uh, experience it, it's very different. And did you... um, did you find that to be the case? Did people give you that impression, or did you not talk to that many of us assimilated Southerners? 
It, we well, did, is, you, know, I, you know, and I'll oh, say, go, go, yeah, you go, go ahead, Chris, go ahead, go ahead, Chris. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't. Okay. The, no, no, it's my fault, and sorry we're walking over each other. I'll, I'll jump in, as Gibbs said too, but I'm sure he'll jump in with something smarter right after me. Um, we did talk to some folks like that, and I, I think exactly what you're talking about. I mean, the, the South is perceived in some ways as backwards still. So in a, in a related paper we did with um, a couple of Gibbs' colleagues at, uh, at College of Charleston, we actually did a little experiment where we had uh, different political candidates speaking a Southern accent or a non-Southern accent, um, and a little more oh, complicated than that was the basic idea. Yeah, and it, it turns out that people really did think that the candidate with the Southern accent was um, not as intelligent as the candidate who did not have a Southern accent, right? It's sort of the most outward sign of if you're a Southerner or not. What I found really interesting about that was that we found that amongst Southerners as well as amongst non-Southerners. Um, so I think what you're saying is, you know, of course it's correct, and, and I think Gibbs talked really well before about this kind of backlash effect, right, that, that a lot of the Southerners we talked to, you know, would sometimes even say, you know, I had this kind of complicated relationship with the South, and then I left the South, and I heard people saying I was dumber because I was from the South, or I didn't wear shoes because I was from the South, or I, you know, <laughs> didn't have indoor plumbing, or, you know, all these kinds of horrible stereotypes – and that's kind of when they discovered their southern heritage, southern identity in some way, right? So Gibbs and I listen a lot to this band, the Drive by Truckers, and their their lead singer Patterson Hood talks about how he left the South and kind of ashamed of it. And then that's when he sort of discovered what it meant to be a southerner in other ways, and and sort of leaving the South allowed him to reflect on it. So I think the dynamic you're talking about is is absolutely you know, not unique to what you experience, but what the lots of folks do. So Gibbs, I'll, I'll shut up now. Yeah. I just was, when Catherine was describing that, and I was thinking about my college friends who, uh, and going, I went to UNC, like I said, but you know, I had a lot of friends from New Jersey and New York and they just basically grew up on the Dukes of Hazzard. So I guess I thought everybody drove right. a, a general, a general Lee car around and every local politician was like boss hog or something like that. And so I do think, you know, the media can really drive things depending on what's popular and, you know, kind of what's going on. And, and I do think a lot of them are negative. I mean, you know, David mentioned all those nice things and then about the South, but, you know, I always had somebody tell me something like, you know, I hear the Southern accent, I automatically deduct 10 IQ points or maybe it was 20 IQ. It was a lot of IQ points. I can't remember exactly what that person would say. But, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's just more nuanced. It's just more complicated than that. It's there. There are some truths to some of those stereotypes, but there's also – all that history and, uh, you know, real progress in a lot of ways, but also a lot of, a lot of sort of continued areas for improvement. And so that's, you know, uh, what connected us to the topic and what keeps us interested in this topic. Okay. I have another sort of anecdote and question. I work for an organization that is a national organization. I work for a local affiliate. And we get involved in politics uh, sometimes. And it's really interesting to me that our national um, office often discredits us because, you know, we're in the South. We don't understand how to handle things, which is not true. I mean, we know our, our community. We know our region. And it's, it's sometimes a real challenge for us to be able to say, wait a minute, we know how to talk to our supporters 
better than you do, but they think they know more because they're, you know, in Washington or New York or wherever. So I think that's an, uh, just an, an additional um, uh, barrier. I'm not sure if it's a barrier, but um, and I think it's true with uh, like our political parties. I think there's some discredit to uh, Southern people like, well, you don't really know how to run a campaign. We're going to bring some, you know, people in from Washington who can help you better. And I do think it, it, it ends up being a, a, a harmful. I don't think it works, but it still goes on. And so do you think that there's, I mean, I just wonder if that happens like in corporate America as well as in organizational politics and nonprofits that there's this image that we can't really run things quite as well as someone from New York or California or Seattle or wherever. And I just wonder if you've had any probably, thoughts yeah, about that. Yeah. I think it probably does. And, you know, we're both academics, so there's probably some of that in education and thinking about, you know, where the sort of highest ranked schools on U.S. News national, uh, national university list are. And so I I definitely think, you know, look, I'd say it's, it's, a, it's a mistake for folks to underestimate the South. Just when we think about Absolutely. politics, right, it's a hu- huge region. I mean, you know, the, the, there are tons of people already here, and it's also a region that's growing. And so, you know, try to win the presidency without, you know, winning the South. And if the South votes as a block, it's next to impossible for the party that loses the South to be able to win. And so... Uh, I, I do think I just think it's a it's a it's a I understand why people do it because I think our mind sometimes wants to stereotype and just sort of like paint with a broad brush, but I think it ignores a lot of complexity. I mean, it's it's an incredibly diverse region. Uh, it you know obviously there's always been a high percentage of African Americans. I think you know I, I, one figure I saw was you know about half the African Americans in the United States live in the South. Uh, but, but, I mean, you know, look at Gwinnett County. We keep coming back to that county, but how people from all over the world now live in Gwinnett County. And so yeah, I just think it's, 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 it's more complicated, and it's not, you know, it, those groups that are discrediting uh, what's going on here I think are really missing an opportunity to fully understand and come to the best possible solution for whatever organization they represent. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 yeah. I, I think it's – go ahead. Oh no, I, was, I, I couldn't agree more. And 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 I, you know, there's a book written years ago by a really smart author, and I learned a lot from it. But I fundamentally disagreed with it. It was called Whistling Past Dixie, and it was written by a political scientist who argued that hey, the Democrats should just ignore the South. They should just whistle past Dixie, right? They should just move on. They don't need those electoral votes. And I think that is exactly the kind of attitude that ultimately frankly hurt the Democratic Party, and, and I think when the Republicans did the Southern strategy, which you could obviously have an entire show or a series of shows about that strategy, <laughs> but I think what that did was to, to pay attention to the region, to give attention to it, and the Democrats responded not by paying attention as well, but by taking it for granted and then even arguing from credible sources that they should ignore it, and I think part of the the real fallacy of that is that what they're really saying, I think, is that they want to ignore the white South. And you know, when we're talking about who are Southerners today, um, Southerner does not mean white Southerner. Right? It is an incredibly diverse region. By some metrics, it is the most diverse region in the country. 
And so I think when these groups are ignoring the South or making fun of the South, they are really in some ways ignoring the um, the racial diversity that exists and, and, and sort of committing some real racial sins of their own. Yeah, and I just want to make a couple corrections here. Uh, I will not admit that the South has better food. <laughs> and I will not admit that the South has better football, as we'll see on New Year's Eve when Georgia plays Michigan. Well, I, I might, I can, I can maybe give you on the football, Catherine. I, I get you got to come to Charleston, South Carolina, if you haven't, and 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 we, I have at least a chance of convincing you on the food because we've got some pretty good food in this town right now. Yeah, well, we have some pretty good food in Ann Arbor, Michigan, too, and and all across Michigan. And I'm not, I mean, there's good food everywhere. I just think that's this right, idea that right. the food in the South is better is uh, a little bit. And I will say that I really, as David knows, I do not follow any sports ball. I don't understand any of it, but I am from Ann Arbor, so I do have to stand up for my uh, my Wolverines yeah. when I have the opportunity. Well, congratulations to Michigan. They're in, they're in, the, they're in the final four. That's really cool. That's right. Yeah. So, so it's now noted Catherine doesn't follow <laughs> sports, nor does she follow fried okra. Um, That's so, right. You know. None. I thought this would be a friendly show. I didn't think this was going to be that kind of shit. <laughs> well, when you start talking about, about about fried okra and grits, it gets real. That's right. Um, That's right. <laughs> well, I want to ask Casey a question about up north, and, and I want to tell you a little story. It seems like every question Catherine asks tonight has to start with a story. Um, I, about 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, drove up between Cincinnati and Columbus. I think I was actually going to Toronto, but, you know, I was on that stretch of I-75. And in southern Ohio, there's this barn with this giant Confederate flag. And then I go back to Columbus about five years ago, same barn, same giant Confederate flag. And since then, it seems like I'm seeing more and more people from Michigan, people from Idaho, people from all these places mm-hmm. – Flying, of all things, the treasonous, lost the Civil War, Confederate flag, which is for worse, I won't even say better, I'll just say worse, an archetype of the South. Why has Southern culture, the negative parts of it, you kind of migrated out of the South and grown for no good reason? And I'll let Dr. Cooper go first on this one. Well, I, I'll, I, I, I'm going to continue the theme here by uh, answering your question by telling a brief story as well. Uh, <laughs> I was teaching in Germany a few years ago, and I went for a run, and there was a Confederate flag on the back of a pickup truck. And I went back to the class the next day, and I said, you know, I saw a Confederate flag in the back of the truck, and, and I know what that means where I live. What does that mean here? And student raised his hand and as polite as he could be he said well, well dr cooper that's the one hate symbol that's still legal in our country and i always thought that was like really interesting but I, I think it also says you know how much we all put you know our own baggage good bad indifferent onto symbols um peter applebaum wrote about this years ago he wrote a book called dixie rising and the uh, the argument was you know about the south sort of this, this question, is the South becoming more Americanized or is America becoming more Southern? And his argument was essentially that America was becoming more Southern, that we do see these Southern symbols, Southern traditions, Southern ideas spreading throughout the country. Um, so Karen Cox and Angie Maxwell, who are uh, both historians, or one's a historian and one's a political scientist, have written a, a good bit 
about how Donald Trump was uh, was a Southern president, and it wasn't that they were making some some dig about Florida. Um, it's that they were trying to say that the, his appeal was a distinctly Southern appeal that really followed the Southern strategy, and, and I think that's that's what's really interesting about Southern identity. The fact that it is an identity and not a static thing is what makes it vary. What makes it interesting to study. Um, just because you live in the South doesn't mean you consider yourself a Southerner. Just because you live outside the South, may live in Germany or may live between Cincinnati and Columbus, doesn't mean that you don't still somehow consider yourself a Southerner. So, Gibbs, I don't know if you got anything to add there. Well, just that you know, you know, David mentioned that you know the book's fairly new; it came out in 2017. But I mean, think about how much has changed, you know, with, with in terms of these symbols and Confederate monuments over the last five years. So, just as we were finishing the book, the tragedy at Emanuel AME, uh, the murders uh, uh, happened, uh, and so we were able to include some discussion of that in our book. And the Confederate flag came down from the State House grounds in in, in Columbia. At the, in, in South Carolina, but there's been, you know, uh, monuments removed and all types of additional discussions. And, you know, look, I, I think, look, I just think a, a, a an identity that is about the Confederacy, this Old South identity, is 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 just, you know, is, is dated and it's very one-dimensional. And certainly, you know, one of the arguments we were making even before discussions about monuments really started taking place is it's much more complex. And uh, people, I think, you know, there's still this connection to the region, but people, for, for some people, it is about that. But for other people, it might be more about the, the manners and the hospitality or the connection to family. There's, there's a lot of different things and connections. There's enough to draw on when people sort of form this regional connection that they have. Yes. Well, I had one final um, kind of more overarching question, um, and that is just a, a few months ago, uh, Dr. Todd Belt invited me to speak to his class at George um, Washington University about Southern politics and kind of the Southern politics of today. And one of my main themes was, is you have these areas like Charlotte and Atlanta and Florida and Texas in the Sun Belt that are really growing. And then you have places like Alabama and Mississippi, and they have water resources and they have a warm climate and they have a labor pool that functions under much of the same laws as the rest of the South, yet they are not necessarily losing population, but not growing at the speed of everywhere else to where they're actually losing congressional votes and political power. Why are certain places in the South, in y'all's opinion, losing population, and what can they do to catch up with the North Carolinas and Georgias and Texases of, you know, our country? And I'll let um, Dr. Knotts go first. Yeah, it's such a good point. I, I wrote this book chapter uh, that came out on a book about uh, the presidential election in 2020 in the South, and I titled it, you know, Five States That Could Change American Politics, and it's uh, many of the ones you mentioned. It's Texas, Florida, North Carolina, Georgia, and Virginia, and those are the states that are growing. Those are the states that have more new economy jobs. Those are the states that are diverse, not just in terms of uh, African-American percentage, but, like, diverse in terms of uh, across a whole host of racial groups, they score fairly high. Uh, and those are the states that I think Democrats have the best chance to do. In terms of states like Alabama, 
Mississippi, Louisiana. I mean, you know, I do, I do think looking at some of the, the ways that the other states, uh, what they've been able to invest in, how they've been, the types of industries they've tried to attract, they've been able to attract, getting people to, making it a destination for people to move to from other parts of the world. I mean, I think those are the types of things that could get them moving more in the direction of those states that the economies are doing a little bit better. Yeah. I, I, I don't have anything to add as far as what could get them to. I think it nails it. Um, I'll just kind of point out so Charles Bullock, who's a University of Georgia professor of Southern politics, sort of has, has been arguing lately that the real new division in the South is between growth states and stagnant states, right? So growth states, Florida, Texas, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, stagnant states, Tennessee, Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. So he says this old kind of deep south, rim south thing that we used to talk about just doesn't really work anymore, that the politics of these growth states and the politics of the stagnation states are the new dividing line in Southern politics. Wow. And I'll tell you, I hadn't heard that, and, I'm, and I doubt Dr. Bullock was on my Zoom call uh, this summer, so we kind of came up <laughs> with the same thesis apart from each other, and I have quite a theme for him, so I, I find that to be um, – Good that I came up with something so astute on my own. Um, <laughs> well, and, and I want to just tell one more little thing, and, and then I want to uh, close it out with letting y'all tell about how to buy the book and all. Um, but recently, so I can teach political science, um, I went back and got another master's degree. And I had already had um, a bachelor's degree from a small southern uh, college and then uh, two masters and a specialist from – Georgia State University, and then I got my uh, political science master's from up in uh, University of Illinois Springfield, and I, and I told uh, my wife this. When I got it. I said, you know, I'm kind of proud that I got it somewhere outside the South just to make sure that I could, you know, handle myself and, and, and compete outside of the South, and I thought that was kind of a sad thing to think. Um, you know, I guess as a proud Southerner, but I actually could go outside the South and, you know, um, compete on a level where I could earn my degree, no problem, and, and keep my standing with all the other classmates, which were from all, all across the country, and with the exception of Florida, no one from the South. Um, so that's kind of, you know, my own personal, like, negative, you know, mm -hmm. inner talk, if you will. Um, Y'all don't have to comment and, and, and try to defend the South or make me feel better or whatever. Um, but right now, if y'all want to tell about how to get the book, where to get the book, where you'd prefer to people to get the book, and then sure. also yeah, if people want to follow you and read you and find, find out more about y'all's work um, on a personal level or a collegiate level. So, yeah, so Great. I would say thank you very much, David. You know, I, you can get the book on Amazon. I think a, the, one of the best places to go is directly to the University of North Carolina Press. I'm on their website right now, The Resilience of Southern Identity, and they're having a 40% off holiday uh, book sale plus free shipping. And so uh, there's no, nothing better than getting 40% off. And the book is in paperback, so it's, uh, it's uh, pretty affordable. Uh, and so, yeah, I would love for, love for folks to go out and do that. I think it's 22 bucks in paperback, and I think you get the 40% off. So that's really great. And I'd say to follow me, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I think my tweets are, are way less insightful and funny than Chris Cooper's, but I'm, 
at Gibbs Knotts on Twitter. So follow me. And uh, I, I love talking about South Carolina politics and also have a book about the first in the South presidential primary. And so it seems like it's a long way away, but we'll be talking presidential politics before you know. So I'll turn things over to you, Chris. No, that's that's great. Thanks, and yeah, I'll just add. Obviously, we both both Gibbs and I are big fans of of uh, our local bookstores. So certainly, we're, uh, we're we're big fans. Anybody who wants to to throw a couple dollars at their local bookstore at the same time, University of North Carolina Press published the book, and so you can get it straight from their website. Or most bookstores should be able to to get that in a few days. So we'd we'd love it if anybody would check out the book and and feel free to send us a note if you see something that you agree with or uh, or politely disagree with. We'd love to hear that too. Um, I'm on Twitter at uh, at Chris Cooper WCU, um, and I try to post some things on there. A lot of it's about North Carolina politics and Southern politics, so I have a feeling that, that some of the listeners of the show might at least find uh, you know every fifth one interesting. <laughs> oh, definitely so. And um, we love having y'all on, and and basically y'all invited y'all selves back on, whether you knew it or not, because we're going to have to have you on or not to talk about that South Carolina primary book. And then Dr. Cooper, you know, North Carolina is one of the more intriguing competitive states in the country. So I'm sure we'll get you on as well to um, talk about that in the near future. We'd love to. That sounds great. Yes. Thanks again for coming on. Thanks Thank for having us. Thanks, Thanks really Kathleen and David. Absolutely. Yes. Bye. All right. That was Dr. Gibbs Knotts and Dr. Christopher Cooper um, with their book, why the South Matters, the resilience of Southern identity, um, you know, why the South matters. And so definitely pick that up. And what a sale, 40% off. Um, Catherine, great show, but we didn't even scratch the surface of everything we could have talked about um, this week. And so next week, in addition to having one of our favorite guests, uh, author Craig Pittman of Florida to come on, who's going to talk to us about um, his book, Cattail. Also, he's going to talk to us um, about some Florida political matters, including that military force that Ron DeSantis is either restarting or starting. Um, we can get the lowdown on that. But y'all, we need to discuss uh, this governor's race, which had two huge announcements, one which you sent to Tim and I first, and then one that happened today. Uh, before we go, tell our listeners about that. Well, Stacey Abrams has finally jumped into the, gover- the governor's race in Georgia. We're all very excited about it. I think we've all been waiting. It was the day after the, um, the results of the Atlanta mayoral race. I think she was waiting for some of the smoke to die down from all the municipal races, so good for her. And then yesterday we learned that David Perdue is going to be running in the primary against uh, Brian Kemp. So that should be a barn raisin blast i'm sure so we'll have a lot to talk about next week and going forward until 2022 november yes no telling what will happen between now and showtime but the plan will be buy sell hold dr oz buy sell hold stacy abrams buy sell hold david Perdue for sure and then whatever else comes up between now and then and knowing our luck it'll be 10 things and we'll need three hours to cover it all uh, but thanks again to Dr. Knotts and Dr. Cooper. And until next week, it's been the Cudzu Vine. Good night, y'all. We are the heirs of that first revolution. We're a strong and united 